0: ESPN's Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents The Greatest Mixtape Ever, the story of how a series of streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place in the culture, defined the lives of the players who starred in them, and changed the game itself forever. Starting June 1, stream on ESPN+, and listen to the companion 30 for 30 podcast, A Streetball Mixtape, exploring the essence of streetball through a collection of legendary stories. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me.
1: My name is Shay Cooper and my dilemma is that the Bulls didn't make it past the first
0: round. I feel ya. Watching, watching the teams that aren't the Bulls compete in the last couple of rounds is hurt. Um, especially in the East. But, on the positive side, as I've been watching, um, both the Celtics and the Heat uh, were not the big three type team that I was worried would take over this league. You know, the type of team that the Bulls would really have trouble putting together. They've got you know, big stars, Butler, Tatum, etc. But they're just, you know, super well-constructed rosters. And I think that means there's hope for the Bulls yet. Uh, we're back in the postseason. We had a super fun regular season for the first time in a while. We've got awesome pieces to build around. Um, and the NBA is sort of proving you don't need uh, the superstar trio to join forces from across the different teams to make it. You just have to put together a good roster. And the Bulls very well could have that. Yeah. Um, but I get it. If you're ever down uh, about not making it out of the first round this year, about the Bulls in general, just remember, it could always be worse. We could be the Knicks.
2: That's what she said.
0: Today's episode features author Arshay Cooper and filmmaker Mary Mazzio. Um The former wrote a book detailing his experience as a high schooler on the west side of Chicago who was introduced to the sport of rowing and saw it change his life and the lives of his teammates The latter is a documentary filmmaker who turned his incredible story into a moving film. Both are titled A Most Beautiful Thing. Um, After those two conversations, stick around uh, for a quick Do Crew update. It's been a little while since we checked in with our Do Crewers. That'll be at the end of the pod as well. Okay, let's start with Arshay Cooper. A rower, award-winning author, two-time Golden Ore recipient for his contributions to the sport of rowing, motivational speaker and activist. His book, A Most Beautiful Thing, is uh, tragic. It's hopeful. It's honest. It's funny. Uh, It's a story of his childhood on Chicago's west side in the late 90s. His mother is a recovering addict. He has three siblings. They all sleep in a one-room apartment just a few floors up uh, from a very violent neighborhood below. The streets are full of gangs The hallways of his apartment complex uh, are full of drug addicts. He calls them zombies because of their strung out arms clutching at him as he passes by. Uh, One day as he's walking out of school, he notices there's a boat in the school lunchroom and a poster that says, join the crew team. Nobody signs up. But the next day, the boat is back and they have pizza and a few people sign up to learn more. And the decision to sign up is one that changes his life forever and changes Uh, his teammates. Uh, They come together. They learn how to row, many having never been on water before, many not even knowing how to swim. Uh, They go from the streets of Chicago to Ivy League boathouses. They travel. They come together. It brings together boys from different gangs, and they become the first African-American high school rowing team in the country. They shatter stereotypes, both of black boys who shock onlookers when they arrive to row alongside their all-white opponents and stereotypes of white men who enter their predominantly black neighborhood, what they're there to do, uh, what they choose to do to stay involved, and how they affect massive, massive change. So here's my conversation with Arshay. That's what she said. So after reading this book, um, there was so much more I wanted to know. And the film helped me understand it. But um, getting the chance to talk to Arshay about the book and writing it and and the journey that... He's taken is uh, is such a gift here. So I'm so excited to have you on. I want to start with you telling folks about your childhood. So, what part of Chicago you grew up in, and some of the struggles early on for your family?
1: Yeah, thanks. Sarah. Uh, you know, I grew up on the west side of Chicago, North Lawndale. You know, I uh, never said the word "daddy" in my life. I uh, my mother was a drug addict for the you know the beginning ages of of her life. My family came from the South and it it was rough for me. I grew up in a neighborhood where, you know, you skip over pools of blood at times. You hear gunshots when you sleep, you know, a lot of different gangs. And, you know, in my neighborhood, I understood that the the talent was everywhere. Also, at the same time, there wasn't a lot of access and opportunities. Like all the places that you go to to find hope, love, coaches, mentors was soon closed down. And then here you go again just hanging out in the neighborhood and and that was like every day on the west side of chicago for me trying to figure out you know how to stay safe in in my neighborhood and honestly how, how to feed myself as a kid
0: yeah so dad wasn't around and mom had major addiction issues especially when you were very young that she reconciled with later and got help for but you know when you're in those early years and you're growing up really fast what do you think it was about you that made you different from other kids in terms of choosing a path of connection and bringing people together and trying to find opportunity versus accepting what a lot of other kids did, which is here are the things right in front of me that give me either protection or opportunity, which tended to be aligning with gangs or selling drugs or taking the opportunities that were first presented.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I still don't know to this day if I was born with this, you know, internal moral compass that led me into, you know, the right decisions. Uh, but I would say that I could have been heading down that path. But when my mom went to recovery, I started, you know, sitting in some of those AA and A meetings with her and then listening to these guys who looked like me, who uh, identify with some of the challenges as my friends or their parents tell their story on how they change and sitting there every week with my mom and in those services kind of helped me um to say okay i am not going to do that because uh you know i see that bullet on, you know on your arm right and i think i think uh being doing that really helped uh but also at the same time i think i never thought my mom would change and seeing her change like that gave me hope that okay that My friends, parents can do the same and kind of feel that that relief of believing every day that your mom's going to die. If I can help provide that or even give people the solution that my mom found that at a young age that, you know, it'd be a better life for everyone.
0: There's a lot of, I think, unfair expectations for kids growing up in areas that have frequent trauma, and that is that they could just shut it off when they go to school and understand the opportunities provided by education or adults who pop into their lives and want to offer things. And I think that comes mostly from people who maybe don't intend to be judgmental, but who only have their own experiences to reflect on and don't really understand what it's like to leave a home that is either food insecure or missing important family members or um, witnessing violence or other things. Um, When you got to school and you interacted with other kids, did you always sort of understand and empathize that on any given day someone's bad mood might be really directly related to something very serious? Or did it take you some time to recognize that the people that you were coming into contact with every day might be bringing a whole bunch of stuff with them to school beyond just whether they liked you or not?
1: No, absolutely. I, you know, I I didn't really understand that until maybe uh, you know tenth grade. But um, I saw it, and again, was aware through um, sitting in those uh, AA meetings. But you know, again, for me, I failed the eighth grade, and uh, it wasn't because I wasn't a smart kid. It was it was like, okay, you didn't eat food last night. You heard gunshots when you slept you just lost someone on your block to gang violence, you walk to school, and then the teacher is like, okay, what's 20% of half? And you're like, what? I don't even care about that right now. Right. You know, and that's what we're dealing with with a lot of kids. So um, I think that those systemic obstacles or structural limitations really, you know, hinder uh, the way we learn. And I think a lot of times even those who live there don't understand why they can't learn. But it's really you're putting survival first, right? Kids are telling you, you're gonna get jumped out of the school unless you join our gang. Right. you're like, oh gosh, like, uh, you know, if I'm gonna get jumped out of the school, you know, I, I'm not even gonna be in the classroom with my classmates or my teacher. All I'm thinking about is should I join this gang so I don't get jumped. So, you know, that's the kind of decisions that we're making every day. And again, it, it affects um, the, the way we learn and, and even, those who play basketball and football, even the way we perform um, outside of the classroom.
0: So you deal with these struggles as you're coming up, you and your family members, Um, your mom does eventually get help and she's gone for a while. And you write in the book about how you sort of grieved her as if she had died when she was deep in the throes of her addiction and um, when she disappeared, you kind of thought, well, this isn't a surprise. She's, she, she hasn't been around and finally it got the best of her, um, only to find out that she was, um, at a home getting help and that you were invited to come see her there. What was that moment for you when you saw her and she, she seemed like a different person having been there for, I think several months at the time, right? By the time you saw her.
1: Yeah. Six months. Uh, it was, it it was beautiful. You know, I think, you know, I did grieve her because, those who were the friends that I had, who mom was in her position, have OD'd already or end up in prison. So when she was missing, I was, you know, I was like, you know, I prepared for this. That she's definitely not going to survive this. That's how bad it was. And um, anyway, my grandmother said, "Hey, your mom checked into a recovery home. We're going to go see her." I didn't see her at first, um, but um, I I remember showing up at this place. And for the first time in my life at 14 years old, I walked into a building where I seen black people, white people, Hispanic people all in one room kind of worshiping in the, in the service. And that was like, oh, wow, this this is something different and, and, and beautiful at the same time. And I see my mom singing on stage. And all the, honestly, hate, or bitterness ahead of my heart, like at that moment, I forgave her. Uh, there was something inside of me it was like, this is a new life for us. This is a new beginning. And then it was a testimony service. It was Thanksgiving. It was a Thanksgiving service, and um, and she told her story. That was the first time I ever heard her tell a story that you know uh, she lost her parents to the trauma that they faced in the South, and so she felt like they wasn't there and. She searched for that love and that emptiness and alcohol and drugs, because that's the only thing she had access to to, heal, to be healed from that trauma and how she found God through this recovery home. And, and she's looking forward to what's next in her life. And, I, and, and it just blew my mind, you know? Um, and, and I was, I was ready to, to do it with her and, and search for this hope that she found.
0: It's really sad how unattended trauma or um, unexplored trauma can fester for people and all the research shows the incredible health benefits both mentally but also like psychosomatically how your body reacts to um, talking about and uncovering and displaying the hurt from from traumatic life events um, and then moving past them. But I think so many people aren't afforded the time or opportunity. It truly is a privilege to have time and money and resources to address the things that cause um, behaviors like drug and alcohol and and abusive, abusive behaviors and things like that. And it's really powerful the way you talk about how you process differently, your mom's journey versus your siblings. You had one brother who did get into um, dealing drugs and was disappearing, and um, how different people and different personalities and different you know family structures resulted in people making choices. And uh, you know, I think in reading the book, one of the things that stood out to me was that you spoke so matter-of-factly about everything, whether it was extreme incredibly difficult things to deal with, especially for a young person or funny things. They all had a very similar tone. And I wonder if that was intentional. You certainly don't milk the trauma for anything. You you just lay it out flat.
1: Yeah, and I think because I wasn't aware of the trauma and, and I'm t- it took me a long time to try to put myself in that place of 15-year-old Arshay. Right. And I was really trying to write from that perspective by talking to my teachers, talking to my friends, um, doing the research, um, you know, talking to my coaches and as a kid, again, I wasn't aware of what we was facing, all those challenges, all those obstacles, you even know the word trauma. And so that's the way I just saw the world yeah. and I really wanted to write in that way. It's like, either you, you know, you go after it and make it happen um or you don't and 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 i wanted to really write in that perspective as that 15 year old kid
0: it's really powerful because it also then reads as very instructional it feels like you want people who might be reading this to think like you and (laughs) and process like you the results and consequences of actions in a way that is very clearly not strictly from the mouth of a 15 year old but would speak to other 15 year olds and i wonder were you thinking about other kids on the west side or, or or impoverished areas or underserved areas um reading this book when you, some of the lessons that you sort of deftly kind of put in there like well i knew that if i did this i wouldn't be able to x or y or if i made this choice then this might happen um because it feels like you you're hopeful about who might read it and and heed your advice
1: yeah no absolutely you know and i think too thinking about like the books i read and, and in high school, like catching a rye and, and hearing Holden's voice and the decision he, he made and how thoughtful he was. And although that that was fiction, I think for me, because before writing, I spent so many, so much time with 15, 16 year olds in the rowing world or in, uh, with, with cooking or helping youth that I have sat in rooms with kids who had the same thought process. Honestly, it wasn't just me. And I never wanted to answer a question for everyone, but get people thinking about yeah. um, how you know how to make that decision and think about what you're thinking about honestly and and i wanted them to kind of think about that on their own
0: i know that kids can be assholes anywhere in fact there is so much secondhand like cringe that i have just thinking about being a young person it's just so it's so uncomfortable figuring out who you are and moving through spaces and you know falling in love for the first time and all the other stuff but i i was curious when reading this and and um and hearing this throughline, I actually just had Quentin Richardson on my podcast, a former NBA player who's come came from Chicago, and he still says his most embarrassing moment was like wearing shoes that weren't cool to school and not being able to get better ones. And I, I was reading, and I think it's such an adult perspective, and certainly it doesn't reflect kids being kids. But I wonder if you if you all had empathy for each other about your home lives and the struggles of parents needing to deal drugs or people not being home and available or money issues, why there was still such a, um, bullying aspect to whether you could wear the right clothes to school and show up with the right stuff.
1: I think that, you know, people articulate their pain as a kid through bullying or for me, I articulated my pain through just being silent, um, you know, seven to eighth grade. But, you know, I, I, um, I, I may be speaking to speak to 50 or 60 schools a year and every time I mention having holes in my shoes, the kids who don't have the Jordans are laughing you know uh, because they feel that pain and that's the way that's the only way um, that they feel like they don't have to think about is through laughter through talk through projecting right um, that pain through someone to someone else, you know, and I think that's, that's a part of it, you know, Um, and it sucks. uh, But I think it's the way that they don't have to think about themselves by really kind of talking about others, you know, and uh, that's, obviously, that's the, the one way I see it.
0: I guess it's a matter of status too, regardless of how much you have, your ability to put someone else down for having even less. So if you're food insecure or insecure about your family or or money or anything else, there's still other people you can find to have, you know, a dominance over regardless of of your struggles. And I guess empathy is something that certainly does take time. The older we I think, the more we have empathy for the situations of others. All right. So I I quickly want to go back to where I should have started, which is the original book was Sugar Water. And I was trying to figure out when I was reading about that, how it was different. And in, in the end, basically... Uh, A Most Beautiful Thing is a rewriting of that story um, with, you know, a a, a new publisher and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, so Sugar Water was, you know, self-published. I didn't get a shot from any of the big publishing houses or the editors and, you know, they all say, hey, you know, the first question was, did you win? Did you guys win national championship? Did you guys win gold medals? (laughs) And, you know, and, and and it was devastating that every, everyone said no. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna write this book on my own. I'm gonna self-publish, but I, wanted to, I wanna show the world how we measure success. Like, how do you get a group of guys from different gangs to form a brotherhood in a positive way? That's something that Chicago has been trying to solve for a long time. And that's mm-hmm. a win, right? And yeah. to, to get kids who afraid of the water, uh, it, it, to find that place of safety through the water, and it becomes that place of refuge. That was a win, and so I, you know, I, I wanted to highlight those wins, and I wrote the book, and and then, um, you know, sold a lot of. I was out there hustling, sold a lot of books uh, through the self-publishing world, and it, um, Mary Mazio uh, found the book, and and um, and and through that, um, every, you know, this agent heard about it and wanted to get it out there to the world, and so new publishing. Uh,
0: In the book, one of the things that stands out is, is your poem, Am I? And I will uh, I'll read it here for those who haven't read the book. Am I just skin that's brown or black? Am I born from love, lust, or crack? Am I made of gold, silver, or bronze? Am I Sam Cook River on the run? Am I a dangerous birdie that's breaking the nest? Am I a local hero without an S on his chest? Am I a stereotype that rap or dance? Am I aspiring chef without a chance? Am I abandoned dirt, sewage and weeds? Am I Africa, sand, honey and breeze? Am I a fatherless child? Am I alone in a crowd? Am I a beast in heat? Am I an ant that seeks? Am I a sound that fades? Am I wine that ages? Am I a train that derails? Am I a representation of water and wells? Am I an N with a trigger? Am I a fool that snoozes? Am I a bum with songs? Am I a child with house? Am I a place of grace? Am I a treasure out of darkness? Am I? Shh, I decide. So it's fascinating to hear about you watching stuff like Fresh Prince or Family Matters and how you identified yourself by these representations on TV. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. You know, before my mom's change and recovery, my church service, my place of hope, where I got hope and inspiration from Black TV shows. Uh, because when I walk out the house, everyone I saw um, didn't live the life that I wanted. Um, and so turning on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and, and seeing him thrive and live in such a big house, it didn't have a father, uh, spoke to me watching a different world seeing people who look like you in college and learning and then graduating and giving back to the place they gave to them uh and seeing the joy in their lives it's like wow they look like me they can do it why can't i do Mm -hmm. it and so that was like my sunday morning service like it gave me so much hope and i was learning from them and even the quotes, I was taking quotes from them and quoting it to kids at school, you know, <laughs> and uh, wasn't even giving them credit. I was like, yeah, that's all me. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, oh, I saw that. Uh, but yeah, that that um, that representation, uh, of seeing those especially black men, um, you know, doing the right thing and, and being such a positive influence to others who look like them really gave me hope.
0: That's a through line for so many different spaces is if you can see it, you can be it. And I think we tend to get lost in our own lived experiences and really don't understand um, how limited it can be for folks who don't have resources and opportunity. I'm on the board for this um, group called Embark here in Chicago and we go into South and West side high schools and we actually replace a class during the day and do experiential learning where we try to encourage kids from those underserved areas to see things outside of their own neighborhoods and some of the things that we've heard from these students are sort of mind-blowing to someone who's used to the privilege of everything being open to them, whether that's that they live two miles from Lake Michigan and they've never seen it, or the teacher brings in a fruit salad and one of the students doesn't know what a strawberry is because they're so used to living in a food desert that they don't see fresh food. Whether that's a feeling of going into downtown Chicago and not being welcome in spaces. And that's their city too. And Chicago struggles so much with, um, with segregation and with resources for one part of the city and not in another. And as you're as you're writing about this, one of the things that stands out to me is your ability to remain hopeful and to see bigger and beyond your neighborhood, which is not always the case for other people in, in those areas that are really limited to a couple blocks around where they grow up, whether that's because of fear of gang activity outside of there or just not having a purpose or reason to explore beyond. Why do you think that is that you could see a bigger picture?
1: Yeah, I think for me, honestly, I couldn't see a bigger picture at first. You know what I mean? Uh, I I, I say quickly, I spoke at a school in Harlem, and all these young Black men were sitting there. They were seventh graders. And I asked them all, what's your dream? And one kid said to eat at Chipotle. And everyone Mm -hmm. started laughing. And I was like, oh my God, like that look he has is so familiar. That was me as a kid, because there's no yeah. way you would have been able to afford Chipotle. Uh we barely had food at night. And and I remember giving the school counselor twenty dollars and I said, You have to make sure he eats at Chipotle, because if you can eliminate the small dreams, there's yeah. room for bigger dreams and more dreams. And one of my dreams was just to only go downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. You have all these kids on the west side, downtown is four miles, five miles away and I know a ton of people who have never been. I started rowing, I go downtown Chicago and I was like, wait a minute, I gotta go out of town. Yeah. So I think that right. I, I could never see myself out of town. I didn't even think about it because I just never been downtown. And so I think that a lot of times that, you know, we never have opportunities for these small dreams to be eliminated. And so we can't see past that. But once like, in Bar- if someone comes to your neighborhood and give you that opportunity, then you're able to see past that, right?
0: Um, yeah, that's incredible. That's yeah, I, I love that idea of like if you just eliminate the small dreams, then you open up their their minds to allow for much bigger than that. And you write in the book about the 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 crew folks showing up to school and. Um, I just love the descriptions. I love the 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 just matter of factness of it all of like these white people are going to put us all in a boat, right? Like just so funny. And to hear the perspectives of all the different classmates and and just, I mean, I can picture it. Just getting people to show up in a room didn't work, but Here's a bunch of free pizza. Now can we convince you to listen to a little bit of what the hell we're here for? Um so take us back to the the first couple of days of showing up and wanting to figure out what they were doing and why they were they were showing up at your school.
1: Yeah, I remember walking into the lunchroom and and Jessica who was a little white lady tapped my shoulders and she was like, "Hey, would you want to join the crew team?" I'm like, "Crew? Like what the hell is that?" You know? You know you're taught in chicago we're working you, yeah yeah i'm like you know you know your parents tell you if someone asks you to join a crew run the other way as fast as you can you know uh and i'm like crew like what is that And she said let me show you and behind this beautiful boat i've never seen a boat before in person was this tv monitor and they were showing the olympic games and i tell you sarah it looked like an opportunity but because no one on the screen looked like me or the world I was used to, I said no to the opportunity. Mm. And I walked away and everyone was like, hell no. Like, you know, I think it was Preston who said, you know, he said white people, stuff like that get you killed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so he was like, I, we're not doing that. We don't even swim. And, um, and so that first day, no one signed up. And there was the second day when I walked in and it was a long line of people signing up and I was like what is happening and it was like free Chicago pizza if you <laughs> sign up and and you know and for me it was the pizza and, and this girl Grace and uh, I decided to go to the info session uh, to find out what this rowing was all about
0: I do love that grace is sort of the through line that 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 carries you throughout because it's such a it's such a common and relatable thing that all the things we do are sort of to to impress someone, whether it's a parent or a friend or someone we have a crush on, there's always this other thing that's sort of also motivating in addition to curiosity or opportunity or anything else. So this guy, Ken Alpert, is behind this. He's a rower at UPenn. He makes a ton of money very young in the financial world and He wants to, uh, uh, someone else suggests to him this, bringing this uh, opportunity to schools. And yours was, was it the only school that said yes? Or one of a couple that said yes?
1: No, this was the only school who said yes. Uh, According to Ken, schools like our kids won't do that. Yeah. That won't work here.
0: So they don't even try. So they show up and and I love that Ken later admitted that the little um, piece of paper he handed for you guys to fill out. Well, have you ever had a pair of Jordans before? Have you ever traveled, you know, to Philadelphia or outside of the state? And all these things to get your minds really thinking about what could this opportunity, what could rowing do for me? And you guys were all expecting to just, you know, get it, get a brand new pair of Jordans. And you're like, what whatever happened to those? Oh no, I just wanted you to like think about it and <laughs> you know, get excited about it. Ken seems like a fascinating dude. And one of the things I really loved was your relationship as you went on because there are a lot of people who parachute into spaces and they are good people and they do want to help, but they don't stick around. And that lesson for young people is just as powerful, if not more so than their efforts to help, is that they didn't stay and they didn't see 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 it out. But um, Ken not only was there for the beginning, but you know, for you in all sorts of other ways in terms of entrepreneurship classes and spending time with him and his then wife and things like that.
1: Yeah, no, that was all. He was great. And I think the the two smart things that he did as a white man coming into the West side of Chicago, uh, number one, he showed up at everyone's house before they joined the team to meet their families. Although <laughs> some families didn't want him around. Right. He, show, he showed up and said, this is who I am. And I want a relationship with you. Not sometimes people go into neighborhoods and they just give us your kids. And he wanted a relationship with the families. Yeah right? And uh, and when you can build a relationship with families, and to try to help run your organization with also the ideas of families, you know, right. you thrive, you know what I mean? And I think the second thing was that was very smart was the representation of the coaches that were on the team. It wasn't just him. Now, first of all, having a woman coach, Jessica, she was so warm and welcoming. Most of us was raised by women. We felt comfortable with women. Right. So having a woman there, I mean, you know, I, I, I learned things from women that I felt like I didn't get from men. And so I think for a lot of guys, they were really, I mean, not just attracted to Jessica, but they love her warmth, right? And right. Her, her, her ability to kind of understand when we are going through things and when we're not, like she was able to read things that I felt like men couldn't. And I think having Coach Victor, who was a black man, um, was being there, showed some of the parents that, that were from the South, that okay, I would do this because someone who looks like us and understand what it's like to be us um, can advocate for these kids in a space where no one looks like that. Right. Uh, so that helped with the trust. So the fact that the coaching staff, the leadership reflected the diversity and in, 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 in the city overall, and 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 had a, you know was representative of everyone. I think made everyone feel a little bit more comfortable.
0: We'll get right back to the interview, but first. What's your favorite word?
1: My favorite word is hope.
0: Hope. From the old English hopian, to have the theological virtue of hope, hope for salvation, mercy, trust in God's word. Also to have trust, have confidence, assume confidently or trust that something is or will be so. From the early 13th century, it also became used to wish for something, to desire. Hope. Great word. Speaking of great words, you're
2: going to learn today.
0: The word of the week is pod snappery, pod snappery. one word, Podsnappery, an attitude toward life marked by complacency and a refusal to accept and recognize unpleasant facts, smug self-satisfaction and a lack of interest in the affairs of others, insular complacency and blinkered self-satisfaction. The word comes from a Charles Dickens character named Mr. Podsnap, a complacent Philistine in the 1864 book, Our Mutual Friend. When it came to the problems of the world, his motto was, I don't want to know about it. I don't choose to discuss it. I don't admit it. Podsnappery, an attitude toward life marked by complacency and a refusal to recognize unpleasant facts. So in a sentence, while podsnappery may be to blame for some who refuse to recognize the epidemic of gun violence in our country evil may be a better word for the many who refuse to act on it now let's get back to the interview you mentioned ken going to people's houses can you tell us about the the teammate who because this is a fascinating twist and it's not the idea of not trusting white people or to your point, people who just come and say, Hey, give me your kids. I promise I've got their best interests <laughs> at mind. Right. And without talking to you or meeting you or getting to you, but the teammate that you had, whose dad overtly and would admittedly say that he hated all white people. And that was why he did not want him involved.
1: Yeah, it was uh, Malcolm's dad. Uh, you know, he, he's a Muslim. He's from the South and uh, he did not like can I don't want that dude in my house. I don't know what he wants. I don't know his intentions, you know? And at some point Malcolm had to leave the team, right? And I remember being this kid, like, I don't understand. What are you talking, this is such a good opportunity. What the heck, man, that's not cool. And Malcolm had to sneak to practice. And, um, but as I got older, you know, Malcolm mom tell, tells a story, it's like, hey, like her brother was hung on a tree in a cell. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he experienced things that we couldn't even imagine. So that trauma, uh, that he felt was like, I am, it came from a place of safety. Right. Like, I'm not delivering my kid to this space of like, no one looks like them and it's growing, they underwater. You know what I mean? So I think that uh, was kind of his mindset um, at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a very fair feeling to have looking at the history of America and then looking specifically at a space that is still, even in 1997 when this happened almost in completely lily white and privileged and condescending and you know, not, not all rowers, not all crew. I'm not painting with a broad brush, but of all the sports and the spaces, it was one of the most limited in terms of diversity. And so you, you understand a fear of, of, for your family and for your kid to, to be a part of that. And you have a couple examples that you, that you write about where, um, the idea of just going into these 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 areas, the way you were looked at, the way you were judged, the way people talked about you, was a constant reminder um, that you were different. And the, the very first race, the Chicago Regatta in '98, um, not only were the people white, but the boats were, and the reps were, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 outfit, the outfits were, the, the uniforms yeah. were. Um, and I, that's another hilarious part that. Um, you, you didn't want to dress like regular crew teams because you were blessed and everybody would see that. Of course. That was the line. We're too blessed for spandex shorts, if you get what I'm saying. Um, but, but I do think like that's one of the buy-ins that comes later is, okay, we're not going to wear the spandex, but we will wear shorter, tighter shorts because it'll help us be better. Um, you know, those are those moments where you put like the team and the competition ahead of vanity or otherwise that kind of reveal that you're coming together. Um, tell me about how you know so you know i want people to read the book and i want people to see how you end up being able to travel to different places and compete but then what you did with it after and so you wanted to be a cook and you were doing a lot of um you were doing an internship and doing all of these things to set yourself up for a career as a chef and i think rowing sort of made you pivot right in figuring out how you wanted to make a difference
1: Yeah, definitely. It it was the lessons that you learn on the water that I think helps you with those decisions uh, for your future. I think, number one, the beauty of the sport is being out there on that water and it reducing the trauma that you get daily on the west side of Chicago. I mean, the fact that I I tried out for football and I was pretty athletic, but I didn't like the way it made me feel. You know, and I love it's football. My like, coach is like knock them. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, and I'm like peaceful. I, yeah, people always try to hit me, you know, like growing up. So I think the fact that it was non-combative, non-conflict, yeah. And you're downloading that serenity, and before it becomes a sport of competition, it becomes a sport of meditation. Right. And you're it's really calming those storms that you go through every day. And so I think number one, not thinking about the trauma. But like focusing on yourself, your breathing, moving well with others, helps you to kind of look out to other possibilities. And then from there, you learn that, okay, I cannot do the work of eight, we need eight people to do the work of one, and we we'll get there much faster. And that was almost the same with being in the kitchen as a chef, that you can't move forward alone, that you have to rely on the talent of others to complete the task And I think rowing teaches you to go after it, to take risk, right? To, you know, we were afraid of the water and, you know, our coach was like, you have to do it afraid. So every time you conquer this fear, life gets a lot less scary. Traveling, Mm -hmm. learning how to swim, being out there in open water, interacting with those who don't look like you, you know, like, we. so all the things that came with rowing uh, and the lessons from it really prepared and set us all up for success, you know, and, um and the beauty of it was that I think the number one lesson that they teach you when you start rowing, it's like leave the boathouse better than you yeah. found it, even if you didn't make the mess, right? And and so it, so when you do that every day and you're learning that discipline, it's like okay, that means I got to leave my teammates better than I found them. I got to leave my neighborhood better than I found it, even if I didn't make the mess, mm. right? Because it makes it better for the next group that's coming in. That's. You know, right, the young children that, um, uh, that, that are being raised in, in our neighborhoods. And so, uh, that discipline, that focus working well with others, um, being able to just keep moving, even if you don't see the finish line, you know what I mean? Um, you know, performing in stressful conditions when the water is choppy, keep like all those lessons really prepare you for your career.
0: That's one of the things I talk about in this podcast a lot that it's super important for kids, but I think super important for adults too, is continuing to do things that scare you or make you uncomfortable or you're not used to, because we get so um, used to being proficient at things or to to knowing and, and understanding things. And we kind of stop learning and growing and it does make life tougher and you do become more scared when you um, decide that things aren't for you or that you can't do them and then once you open up to the opportunity that you might learn something or change or grow from uh, challenging that fear it it completely changes your life which is what happened for you so tell us um, I want everyone to read the book but after um, you graduate from high school tell us what you went on to do and, and what you've been doing since yeah,
1: I went to uh La en Blue first and um, you know and became a chef. I my first job was at Blackbird in Chicago. Amazing on restaurant, Street, which yeah. is an amazing restaurant under chef Paul, who's who's been awesome for me as a kid. And from there I got a job working with WWE Wrestling as as a chef, <laughs> and then Warner Brothers was brought me to New York and I was teaching some cooking classes. Like done a lot in the cooking world, but once I started teaching young people how to cook and and talk a lot about healthy living and healthy lifestyle. I was confronted with kids who look just like me, who grew up like me. And it reminded me of the, the story that saved my life, the sport that saved my life. And I wanted to get back into the sport and give that gift to others. Um, and so that's when I wrote the book. That's when I started uh, helping people, created a blueprint on how to start a rowing program in under-resourced communities and start helping people start their, you know, launch their team. Um, and Mary Mazzio found me. Um, you know, we got together with Common and Grant Hill and uh, the Winklevoss twins and Dwayne Wade and put this film out there to the world. And um, since then we created a most beautiful thing, Inclusion Fund. And this year alone, we introduced uh, 2,000 kids to the sport Amazing. of Brown, uh Which is awesome. We had this huge event, Sarah, in Chicago this past September 11th. Uh, with the Obama Foundation, with the Chicago Sky team, and um, and we put a lot of kids on the water, which was amazing. Um, and that's kind of what I'm up to. That's these so days. cool.
0: The movie was was really fascinating because you 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 went back to tell the story of of how it all began, but then we're looking at these these guys twenty years later, and you're moving your bodies again, and the muscle memory of trying to get back to to the. The ergs and 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 the boats, um, and and also you know what had happened to the people since um, you know Alvin went to jail, and we learned about Alvin's sister and the abuse that she had faced, and some of the things that contributed to his life and who he was. Um, we, we learned about um, deaths and and setbacks and things that had happened. And I think that's super important too, because a lot of these stories, to your point at the very beginning, you pitch the book and they're like, well, if you didn't win, I guess, you know, uh, not worth telling. And what you wanna share is that it's not the end if somebody learns great lessons, becomes better, and then still makes a bad choice and ends up in jail or or needs to come out of a bad, a bad time in their life. Um, that that's still a story worth telling and bringing them back together. And then eventually having all of you row with the police was such a profound, controversial, difficult, <laughs> but profound moment.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, we were filming and, um, you know, everyone was just talking about not just my team, uh the disconnect between all the gangs on the West side of Chicago. And I was like, that's not the only disconnect. The biggest disconnect also is uh, the police and the black community. Yeah. And and I, to- I remember sitting with the guys and I was like, what if we take them back to the same place where we didn't get along at first? <laughs> and, um, and I said, and they were like, what? Nah, that happened. Maybe against them, but not with them. And I said, you know, as a teacher, you will always forget some of your students, but as a student, you never forget your teacher. And we have an opportunity to be the teacher here. And and I think if they work in our neighborhoods, which they will, if we protest today, they still will be there tomorrow. Uh, and they're going to interact with our teenagers. I think that this can be a good thing. And and they were all for it. And I think they didn't trust police, but they trust me. And um and we invited them out, and um, it was awkward at first. Uh, and but we got on that water, and it was just beautiful. It was magic happening all over again. And one thing you do, and I wanted to use the water to do this because you know I'm always talking about metaphors for rowing, and rowing teaches you that you don't accomplish anything comfortable. You have to be courageous and uncomfortable the whole time. And for us to get to where we need to be, we have to have uncomfortable and courageous conversations, and and we had those. And I think that the more we were on that boat, training and practicing, um, the more we learned more from each other. And uh, and I think that you know we did a, a interview with those cops on Today Show, but to hear some of those guys say, "Hey, Alvin grew up not making bad choices, but hard choices," mm. that. Malcolm called. Everyone knows that Malcolm called his son every ten minutes. They really like black men love their yeah. kids, right? And um, and I think one of the most powerful things I heard from one of the cops, Officer Matt, he said that, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, I had a bunch of bricks thrown at me, and I realized that I can take this uniform off, but you guys can't take your black skin yeah. off, right? Uh, and that was the point. Yeah. Like right? that was that was the win. And, you know, like I said, it doesn't change the system, right? But for me, it's, it's like one courageous step at right. a time. And, and, and that's what I wanted to do. And I think the ultimate goal was like, hey, by learning more from each other, we all understood that the trauma that we face on the west side of Chicago, the cops also face the same trauma, but it's all a result of racism, structural limitations, right? Those Jim Crow right. laws. And how do we move forward?
0: A lack of connection, which is your great gift, yeah. Arshe, which is what you did in bringing together everyone to join Crew in writing the book, and then bringing more kids to it, and bringing the police and your friends together. This great gift of connection, which is something that's you know more important than ever, and um, that story is a, a really powerful one because I do think. Um, the empathy for the experiences of others and the understanding of the lives of others is the key to, to bringing all those people together. And so you afforded those, those police, the opportunity to see things from the other side. And to your point, it doesn't fix everything, but maybe their next interaction is different because of that. And that could be everything to the person that they're interacting with. That could be their life. That could be whether they live or die when they encounter um, that particular officer. Um, on both sides, the way that they approach it, so it's really powerful. Uh, well, the book's incredible, the movie's fantastic. Uh, I assume that you're doing big things out in New York, but you're always welcome to come back and do them in Chicago, um, and you know, let us know, keep us updated on on what's next and the next big thing you're you're putting together, because I'm sure lots of people would like to support it.
1: Yeah, and I would love to get you out on the yeah. water, with the kids. Next that would time be in amazing. Chicago, I've always wanted to. They
0: tried to get me to do it at at Cornell, which is, of course, a big place for crew. And I was already spoken for by the track team. I was already I was already spoken for, but um, I would love to do it. That'd be great.
1: Awesome. I'm so um, glad you had me on the show. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I believe in sports, and 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 also, uh, you know, the work we do beyond yeah. sports. And so appreciate uh, you for putting some great content. For out sure.
0: There. Now let's hear from Mary Mazio, American documentary filmmaker, attorney, and a rower for the 92 Olympic U.S. team. She founded the independent film company 50 Eggs. They made this film narrated by Common, executive produced by Grant Hill and Dwayne Wade. Other producers include the Winklevoss twins, co-owner of the Seattle Storm, Jenny Gilder, and more. The film won a 2021 Gracie Award. Nominated for an NAACP Image Award, Critics' Choice Award, nominated for Best Documentary by the International Press Academy, and named one of the best films of 2020 by Esquire. It is currently streaming on Peacock as well as Amazon Prime if you want to watch it. 20 years after the events of the book, the documentary reunites the young men to race again, not only to celebrate the founding of their team, but the fact that they're still alive and together. It's really fantastic. Here's my conversation with Mary.
1: That's what she said.
0: So to talk about how this book became a movie and the timeline of it all, our guests and and what's fascinating as I was doing the research for this is how our own history as both a rower, but also her interest in issues that align with this story all lined up perfectly for her to take on this project. So um, to get into it, Mary, let's just start with a brief history of your own um, involvement with rowing your time at Mount Holyoke and, and Georgetown and how that eventually led to you becoming a filmmaker
2: uh oh boy um uh, mm-hmm. so so sarah you know you're talking to somebody who had no eye hand coordination in high school you know cut from literally okay i played jv softball where i would like you know squeeze my eyes shut and hold my glove off right oh, no and i i was on the varsity track team miserably throwing the javelin right and um that's and my I sport a, right I was,
0: there i love the jav.
2: I, was I, not oh, you weren't cool. a fan right Um, and I was a varsity cheerleader with like an excellent split (laughs) jump, if I don't say so myself, but so I go off to Mount Holyoke and I'm approached, this is all women's school and I'm approached on campus and somebody, I had danced for a long time and, and somebody approaches me, he's a man. And he's like, well, those are big pins looking at my legs. And I'm like, what the, right. (laughs) Um, and he said, I'm the new rowing coach. Like, would you consider trying out? And I'm like, I always wanted to be like an extraordinary athlete, right? I used to dream about the Olympic games. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. So I show up on day one, he has us run a mile around a lake and I am out of 150 women that showed up DFL. Like I am so pathetic. And so he comes to me and he's like, yeah, we got to get down to, you know, 24, whatever people Um, you pretty much don't have to come tomorrow. And I don't know, Sarah, what I said, but this proved to be a lifelong lesson. My mother always said, never take no for an answer. Like no means no in that minute. I don't remember what I said to him, but he let me come back. And by the end of the first week, like the number of people that wanted to get up at five in the morning, Mm -hmm. run to the boathouse. Right. Um, And I, I was like. I became an athlete by default. Right, by default. I
0: I find that that seems to be the case sometimes with crew in part because it's a sport that's very regional and not super well-known. So I went to Cornell. You have to pass a swim test there. And so a lot of us that know how to swim, the very first week you just go get it done because you, you can't graduate without it. So they tell freshmen, all right, go. And the crew coaches would just stand by the pool all day. Uh, looking for potential people to see if they could turn them into a great rower that just never knew it. And unfortunately for them, I was already spoken for by the track team, but they were like, Ooh, tall, long limbs, look strong. And I was like, exactly. I, I, I yeah. You were for. too yeah, too but bad. We didn't grab you. while we, I know. Sometimes I think about that because one of my high school uh, classmates was not particularly athletic and went on to be a great rower. And maybe she had the exact right things like you for the hand-eye coordination, not for other things. And then exactly. in rowing. Was the perfect mix. You know, it's about like. I wonder if I tried it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's all about like you're a swimmer, anaerobic, like having a really good anaerobic threshold base, right? Like all of that incredible endurance, strength, right? You just don't need the eye hand coordination, Right. right? Which is sort of dispositive. And so, in any event, I go off to Mount Holyoke. I become a very big fish in a very tiny, tiny pond. We were not a strong team. And then I started trying out for the US team. And, you know, that was a series of really interesting, you know, you're too short, we don't know if you have what it takes, and ultimately sort of heaved myself up, you know, into a single, where you're only judged by yourself, like how fast you go, and, and ultimately did make the Olympic team after, after a series, actually, my first film that I did, A Hero for Daisy, that I know we'll talk about later, reminded me of the lessons that I learned from giants in the sport that served to honestly catalyze me in ways that I never could have imagined. So, um, so in any event, that's the, the, you know, yeah. The yeah short, you, uh, United trajectory.
0: States, uh, 92 Olympic team, which is so cool. I mean, that's the dream for every athlete is the Olympics and just unbelievable memories, I'm sure. And then it becomes a massive part of your identity. You get your law degree from Georgetown, but you're also studying film production at Boston university. Is that the same time or was just it just after? Yeah. After just just from? after. So I'm going to be you like, honestly, on the sly. I'm,
2: I'm, I get a job after the games I'm working for a law firm, you know, killer hours. But I had in the back of my head this idea, um, and I know, Sarah, you'd appreciate that when you looked around, like how women were articulated, mm-hmm. You to have value, it was about being blonde, leggy, you know, mostly two-dimensional and certainly not controversial or opinionated. And, and I was, you know, shortly thereafter, when I made my first film, I was pregnant with a little girl and I was like, okay, she's not going to be leggy <laughs> or blonde. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's so important for her to know that she can go out and get dirty and sweaty and explore her limits for who she is and what she can become rather than what she looks like. Yeah, And so that was the birth of my very first film, which happened to be, you know, the back, backdrop, of course, was the sport that I love, rowing.
0: So I, I love too, and in listening to some of your interviews in, in other places, you talked about how your law... Um, really led you to wanting to fix issues. You looked across neighborhoods and landscapes in which you lived and saw inequalities that you wanted to solve legally and you understood the importance of the law for those things. But also it sort of ended up pivoting you into the storytelling act of finding and seeking out equality and creating policy change by convincing people using specific stories instead of broader policy, which is like a fascinating kind of pivot point for you.
2: Well, it became, you know, I was doing a lot of like work for indigent tenants and people getting kicked out of And it started when I was in law school at Georgetown. I'm paying what two or three hundred dollars, right? I'm living with a bunch of students in this group house. It's in it's a beautiful home, right? It's safe. And and I am representing tenants, um, primarily African American, that are uh, paying 800, 850 at at that time. This is now 20 whatever years ago for rat infested, no heat, Mm. barely any running water. And you saw the profound found inequality, right? Like it was so visible and I'd show up at court and I, yes, I would, I would save them from being evicted or I would get them some money or, 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 but I felt like every time I showed up in court, it was the same story, but a different face. And, you know, you, you feel a sense of satisfaction. Like, how am I using my privilege? How am I using my tools in service to others? But I felt like after some period of time, I was like, I'm not changing any policy. Like, I'm having no impact
0: in any material way. Taking them off one at a time instead of changing the future for the next one so you don't have to keep. You know exactly exactly yeah so i mean that's that's fascinating and and so all of this sort of comes together um and and like you said your first doc is a hero for daisy and actually first aired on i believe espn classic was the first home espn
2: classic yep espn2 i think we had yep. a number of rolling you know yeah different it was the times. it was and and honestly for espn to have picked it up you, you know you think about this most of the material there was no ESPNW back then, right? It was mostly male-driven, you know, content and sport, and the and team... ESPN
0: produced. Usually, it's our own content that we create yeah. and lay and roll out of our own film crew and and film department. But this was your own project,
2: yeah. And and what ESPN did is they created a wrap with like Pat Summit, Robin Roberts. I think Billie Jean King was involved, and highlighted the importance. Of Title Nine, and so consequently, we came back and did another project, right? And this this was about mothers, called Apple Pie with ESPN. But I very much um, appreciate uh, the support that ESPN showed in those early days, and that really helped to, honestly, Sarah launch my career. Yeah. You know, it, it gives you credibility, it gives you a platform, a home. Um, and I remember the team said, "Mary, we got such great viewer feedback. Let's do another." Yeah, And that was extraordinary for, well, a, for and a go-girl story, right? I was going
0: to uh, say, but also like to your point, you're pivoting to this kind of newish space and you're taking all the tools that you've got. And it's certainly a story that you know, because it, it, the, the movie was about um, Olympic rower Chris Ernst and the Yale female crew team. They were protesting uh, the lack of um, equal boathouse um, access and resources that they were getting to the men's team at Yale. And this was around uh, shortly after Title IX. And so they realized that they could use this law to advocate for themselves. And they did so in a really dramatic way, arriving at the athletic director's office, fully nude with Title IX and all sorts of things written all over their bodies. Yeah, to say that our bodies are, are, are the thing that you are sort of Ruling on when you say that we're not deserving of showers in a boathouse and not getting hypothermia on the bus while we wait for the the boys to do everything. And that story combines what you were just talking about of wanting to advocate for girls and your girl, um, bringing in your background of rowing. So it it feels almost crazy. And I guess there's plenty of rowing content out there. I shouldn't be myopic about it, but like that another project would come your way that would be this great mix of advocating for. neighborhoods and, and marginalized communities through the lens of rowing, which is what happened with The Most Beautiful Thing. True, true, true. And before we segue to a Most Beautiful Thing, I just have
2: to add a couple of like things happened around A Hero for Daisy that for me, like you said before, the power of story. So it catalyzed a case in Michigan that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, right? That was that um, where this group of parents whose daughters did not have fair conditions, they prevailed. And yeah. they all got together for a screening of A Hero for Daisy. And they called me up 12 years later and said, wow. hey, do you remember the event? And there were a thousand girls. I'm like, of course, there were a thousand girls screaming, right, um, around the movie. And I said, I was honored to play. And they're like, this helped provide the spark for that lawsuit. And Amazing. all kinds of other pieces of social action happened in the wake of that of the film. Right. And, and that was a really exciting way to learn about, boy, you know, how do you use visual media? And so we fast forward now to a most beautiful thing, which, um, I, you know, listen, I remain indebted to Arshay Cooper. He wrote the book um, that described in vivid detail um, this fledgling team on the west side of Chicago. Right. Uh, the first public high school African-American team. And it was a self-published book. Right. And somebody said, hey, have you heard this story? And I was like, uh, this was under the
0: name Sugar Water, which I just talked to Archie about was sort of the first iteration of this storytelling.
2: Exactly. And and he was tweeting about it. And he he has a hilarious story that I'll get into in a second. But um, I'm like, yeah, this is an alternative set of facts. Like what team on the west side of Chicago? Mm -hmm. I've been kicking around this sport. How exciting. I order the book on Amazon, take to Twitter and he tweets, boom, back within minutes and then calls me. And said, would you? And when you get a call from somebody like Archie Cooper saying, mm-hmm. would you? There is no answer other than yes. And to be invited into this space and go on this journey with Arche has been, honestly, especially in a year that we had after the murder, and acutely and particularly after the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. and working on this with Grant Hill. Grant and I are now working on a new project, but to work with this, with Grant, with uh, Dwayne Wade, of course, with Common. Yeah, there was a um,
0: wild list at the end there. The <laughs> Winklevosses, which of course we all most know from the Facebook movie. You know, uh, and, Jenny Gilder, who's one of the owners of the Seattle Storm, who was part yeah. of that Yale crew team uh, that that stripped down and, and advocated for themselves. Like, There's quite a list of, of really high-end folks involved with this project. You know,
2: Bill McNabb, who was a Dartmouth or, he ran Vanguard, and Bill Hudson, who was a Princeton or, right? And so we had extraordinary support um, for a most beautiful thing, and, and a wide variety, um, you know, of people coming in, and that was really exciting to be able to explore the notion of privilege and access and opportunity, but to do so in a way that um, was so resonant, right, in the year that it came out, and it was scary, Sarah, like. You know, we were going to debut at South by Southwest, and we had all kinds in a, a theatrical run in 20 cities, and then COVID hit. And mm. I remember ca- calling Grant and saying, "Grant, oh shit, what are we going to do?" And Grant was like, "What are we going to do?" And so he starts working the phone. I start working the phone, and and ultimately we struck a number of wonderful partnerships, right, with um, a, a number of different outlets and Comcast, NBC Universal, of course, first and foremost, and. You know, Amazon and Fila came in to create a most beautiful thing shoe with proceeds cool. to support underserved communities. And the philanthropy that exploded in the wake of this project was amazing. And R. Shea, last year himself put 2,500 young people of color on the water. Awesome. Um, you know, there's a boat maker that that um, now is donating free boats, and for these amazing. programs to have brand new equipment. Right, thirty thousand dollar boats has been um, extraordinary, and I went with Arche last year to Newark, and to see a group of African American mothers pouring champagne over brand new boats, launching their kids on the water. I'm getting goosebumps. Really this is cool. a homogenized white privilege really? from a hero for Daisy. You know, originally the confines of male athletes, and for you know, first Chris Ernst to sort of kick open the door. For generate and and Gilder and their Yale team for generations of women and now Arshay Cooper to kick open the door yeah. for um, for generations now of young people of color. I was just out on the water with my with my Olympic partner, my long term doubles partner, last week, and I looked around. I was like, I have never seen now. There's not enough diversity. I have right. never seen the kind of diversity on the Charles River that I am seeing right now and. And to know that Arshay's voice is so powerful, and to yeah. just like
0: be part of the team. well in a different city because you know all of his work came out of Chicago, and yep. as I just talked to Arshay, the the cast of characters involved and the people that got this going is an incredible one. But to your point, you're you're rowing out in in you know Boston area, right? Yep. And then Arshay's now in New York, spreading word out there. Um, actually, you know, I, I'm curious because the visuals in the film, I'm a Chicago gal, so I'm, I'm biased, but Chicago <laughs> just looks beautiful. And the way the, the place, and I actually had seen people rowing there before, but had not thought that that would be like where a race would happen, but running right up into looking at this beautiful skyline alongside the lake and, and, and Lincoln park. Um, I have a tiny bit of a rowing connection because I actually hosted the um opening of the new WMS Boathouse at Clark Park, I emceed the One River Benefit to help. No kidding. Yeah, of course. with Tom Emanuel and all these folks uh, at the, the the beautiful Jeannie Gang designed boathouse. Um, it's gorgeous,
2: by it's, the way. And, and we did a lot of filming there, as you know, right? Yeah, that, that yeah. And it was cool and... to
0: see that. Um, but I wonder if you had spent any time in the rowing world in Chicago before, or even in those spaces, or when you arrived to shoot, were you like, could this be any more perfect? This is the most beautiful... <laughs> Like Especially those
2: boathouses and the interior, like the tanks, Lincoln Park, right, w- w- which is so picturesque and yet so remote yeah. for a whole segment of the population, right? So mm-hmm. it served as a visual and kind of stark reminder of who has access to what space, right? Um, I had not rode in Chicago like prior to this film ever. Of course, I knew a lot of people, right? It's a small world and I knew people that had rode out there. But other than that, no, I was like new to the scene and, and excited by you know the Lincoln Park Boat Club. And all of the entire community just rallied around the project, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, in the wake of this, I mean, Arshay has been in Oakland, in Newark. He really is around the country. And the philanthropy has allowed him to grant fairly sizable sums, new equipment, Bringing sponsor money in right into these communities across the country that are have been historically neglected, and and you know the sports, Sarah, as you know, there are 100 D1 rowing programs across this country. It is among the largest uh, sport in terms of access and opportunity for young women of. That come from these neighborhoods, right? For access to that kind of education, because there are full scholarships that go along with that, right? And it's so exciting to see the generation of women and and what Title IX has done, frankly, for the sport itself, right? That has been, and that's resulted in gold medal performances at the Olympic games, right? With
0: with unbelievably
2: talented women.
0: I really recommend that people read the book first because there's a magic to imagining everything and seeing everything in your head and then watching the film and putting faces to the names and, and learning more about it. And there's some epitaphs in the movie that were not in the book but that you learn a little bit more and get into more detail about some of the issues. But uh, the the film was really um, useful to me because the anatomy of a crab um, when you read about a crab, you understand the idea of like, oh, the paddle, the oar got too deep, and now you can't push up against the weight of the water. But you sort of imagine just fumbling with it. And the 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 montage of people falling out of boats really sent home the message to me of just how bad it is if you catch a crab. Um, so that was really fascinating, and I think, um, again, being able to see the faces of the people talking about what it did for them and their families, and I wonder for you. You know, coming into Chicago, there is such an incredible divide. It is one of the most segregated big cities in the country. And I work with a group called Embark that works with West and South Side underserved Chicago high schoolers. And we do experiential learning where we literally take them into spaces that they don't otherwise go to, just like rowing, to learn about something and expose them to something that they may fall in love with and be passionate about and want to pursue. And some of those students live two miles from Lake Michigan, and they've never seen it. They have a teacher who brings fruit salad to class and they literally, one student, couldn't recognize a strawberry because food deserts and the kind of opportunities that they're offered. And I wonder for you going into spaces on the West side and filming and getting involved with those families, um, what was the biggest takeaway for you?
2: So there were two. Uh,
0: One was the profound notion
2: of inequality of safety. And very few people talk about what that means you talk about you hear about income inequality you know for young people on the west side the fact that they cannot get off their block safely and the notion like most of us that live in the world of privilege oh those people are making those choices to join right. those gangs that right. is 100 percent fake news that is an urban myth these children choose no such thing rather it's how am I going to get off the block safely to get to school I think that was really profound. And then, of course, speaking to the families, this idea and notion of intergenerational trauma that a lot of people will say, oh, terrible things happened 400 years ago. Well, no, 400 years ago was just the beginning. It is on and on and on. And Shea, of course, speaks to this, these issues that affect uh, African-American communities like the West Side and then, you know, as the film's coming out, you have the murder of George Floyd. And so the story that Arshay and all of the other young people are speaking to could not have been more resonant. And, you know, on the flip side, you know, having worked with um, Arnie Duncan, right, former secretary of education who is running Chicago Cred and working really deeply on with uh, gang members, right, in Chicago, um we also worked very closely with the obama foundation you know again we had extraordinary opportunities with a whole host of stakeholders after the after the film came out um in ways that were yes kind of sort of sports related but then again not at all and it was right. like how do you think about access how do you think about opportunity and also what began happening sarah was we were invited into fortune 50 companies That, you know, whether it was Carol Tomei hosting an event around the film for her top 200, you know, leaders at UPS, whether it was a huge event at J.P. Morgan or Target, how do we think about privilege? How do we think about institutional privilege? How are we showing up in different communities? And honestly, it was so exciting to be part, um, have, you know, again, this visual tool that could really catalyzed that kind of revolutionary in many ways thinking because everybody was setting the table with all kinds of books and white papers, but the film gave people an opportunity to step into the shoes of a young man, of a young woman and do so in a way that didn't make them feel defensive.
0: Right. And that's important. I think there are what's sort of sad is these conversations are had in spaces around the city so often but there had in echo chambers of people who are already invested in care and the people who have already decided, to your point, that these are choices being made or that these are bad people, um, that is not the result of historical precedents like redlining and racial covenants and all of the things that allow generational wealth to be difficult to gain but also reflect an inequality of resources and investment that make it very clear what you can see and imagine for yourself versus what's presented to people in other spaces and that's why this is such an interesting mix because it is one of the most white homogenized wealthy endeavors to be in crew <laughs> paired with this group of people. And and that's another aspect of this that I found so interesting in Arshay's book, and it comes up in the film too, is this idea of trusting white people and they make jokes about it. You're going to get white people to put you all in a boat and go row, right? Then crack jokes to kind of cover up for what is really a deep-seated fear of trust. And I wonder, and we're running out of time here, but I want to know how you got their trust to, you know to tell their think, story the right way.
2: Honestly, I feel like, um, so fortunate, right, that Arshay pulled me into this journey with him. He asked me to be part of this, and I was acutely aware as a, you know, blue-eyed, white rower that didn't come from money, but came from extraordinary privilege, and there's a huge difference. Yes. Um, I learned more along this journey, I think, than, um, than, than I could have ever imagined. And I think, you know, having worked in these communities for years now, right, doing different kinds of stories, you know, everyone's human, and they've got pain, they've got humor, and every human has a beautiful story. And so when I like have a conversation, it's a conversation, you're my new friend. And I feel like the guys, um, I'm sure the guys,
0: it took a while for the guys, Arshea, right? I mean, because he he's a natural me, connector of people and he's, he's unbelievable. He believes in the um, best in people. Others maybe not, not as that quick. being said, he told me, you know how he tweeted to me. He told me that he was
2: also tweeting to Brad Pitt, Will Smith, <laughs> um, the whole yeah. cast of characters. And he's like, Mary, you're the only one that answered my call. Yeah. Yeah. And there you have it, right? Like sometimes you just need to pick up the phone. And when somebody asks you, can you bring some skills to an issue? You just need to say yes.
0: Yeah, I love that. How lucky, right? How lucky am I that I think? Taking your tools and taking your passion and putting them together. That's that's so useful. Uh, Before I let you go, I have to ask quickly the decision to connect with the Chicago police and have them row together. How did that come about? And how has that been received? Because I think even myself, it's so difficult. You understand the power that it can provide. You also don't want it to feel like let's tie a bow on an extremely complicated issue by something that can be easily achieved in this moment and, and, and not understand the work that we'll need to go into actually having it make an impact moving forward. You know what? Great
2: question. Here's how it came up. And it was very authentic. Our Arshay called me and he said, and it was after a series of conversations we had with their mothers. Right. So the film prompted really interesting and deep and profound sh- testimonials. And he said to me, there are two things that, that um, black mothers will fear. A of course that their son or daughter is going to join a gang but B, that there is gonna be an interaction with law enforcement. These mothers are constantly losing their children to that kind of interaction. And he said, what if I call up the cops and be able to share that fear? And you can, Sarah, the hair on the back of my Mm -hmm. neck went up and I said, Arshay, you know, I I, I was almost speechless. And and Arshay said, I know it could be deemed controversial, for a number of different reasons. But you have to look at Arshay Cooper. When he, he, as a young man, he was thrown down on a police car, arrested, hauled down to the station. He sees the cop that arrested him. He's 17 years old. He sees them when he's working at Starbucks as a barista. He hands him a latte and says, you know, I really am a good kid. That officer invited him to play poker. He had an ongoing poker game with the cops. That same cop, 20 years, later is in Arshay's wedding. Wow. This is Arshay, vintage Arshay Cooper. Yeah. He pulls people together that have no business coming together. So I said, oh boy, Arshay, like, are you sure you want to do this? This is going to, this is going to open up. And he said, I'm going to talk to the guys. And the guys, as you can imagine, were like,
0: "F!" Eh. <laughs> you know, and he said, guys, Guys that have been in prison for years, yeah. guys that yeah. are currently wearing ankle monitors while Absolutely. rowing. And, and right. you know
2: why they said, let's do it? They said, "Arshay, we trust you. And interestingly, in conversations after the film, who was behind Arshay? His entire community, because they knew what was at stake. Right. And his starting point was, if you know our names, you may be less likely to draw a, a gun. Yeah. And so... I think what he did was so brave, yeah. so profound, and he's been challenged, but mostly by people who don't come from neighborhoods like he comes from. And and he is really, hearing him speak on this has literally reduced me to tears. And, and Grant Hill as well, right? Because it was a very deliberate thought process on Arshay's part and how exciting That he was able to do that and when do you ever see a piece of media where young men from the neighborhood are teaching and they're being the instructors yeah and they are in a position of authority
0: and the police uh, at least one was very nervous and uncomfortable because (laughs) he didn't know what the hell he was doing and so to have this unexpected twist of now it's this West side, former gang member teaching a police officer how to row like a white police officer is learning how to do crew crazy. from crazy West side. Yeah. It, it's great. And I do think, There's so many conversations in Chicago about connecting neighborhoods with the people who patrol them in order to recognize the humanity there and to connect on a human level so that in those instances where something comes up, you are treating people like human beings instead of reacting out of fear or judgment. And so this is a tremendous way to actually visualize that and see it happening. Um, And of course, the important thing then is to take those relationships and keep fostering them and spreading out to to more people within the community and, and more people within within the police force. Um, This was such a great conversation. I I encourage people to watch it. They can stream A Most Beautiful Thing on Amazon. And are there other ways to access it or is that the best? Yeah, it's
2: also, um, it's streaming on Peacock as well. Um, And if you don't get Amazon or Peacock, it's on, um, come to our website, 50eggs.com or a com. And it's basically, I think it's on Apple and it's basically on every platform now. Right. Um, And then A Hero for Daisy, we have just remastered to 4K and you can find that on 50eggs.com or aherofordaisy.com. And we're so excited. A number of conversations are happening around the film, of course, as we approach the 50th anniversary this year and and for the film to catalyze and be originally with ESPN and then featured in the new four-part Title IX documentary, right, where the producers were like, yeah, we know about the story because we saw a hero for Daisy. It all comes full circle and really appreciate, again, the early support of your, your pal, Sarah at ESPN.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a great teaser. Cause next month we're going to have a whole bunch of content about that documentary in title nine in celebration of the 50th anniversary. Thanks so much, Mary. All right. Great to see you, Sarah. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. Tell you what to read, listen to, think about, watch. This week, we got a do-crew update, first in a while. Let's first hear from our ukulele player, Melissa, who is crushing it. Hi, Sarah. This is Melissa, and this is my favorite song to play on the ukulele. Thanks for the push to do this. Appreciate it. Not quite crushing it, our girl Sarah, who has suffered a setback uh, training for her race. She writes, I was set to start training for my first ever triathlon May 16. A couple weeks ago, I partially tore my calf playing slow-pitch softball. I've been on crutches since, hoping that by the time these updates are shared... I'll be off the crutches and in PT. My sights are still set on completing the triathlon, but I was motivated to commit to an eight-week training plan to make sure I was at my best on race day. Unfortunately, I'll need to make some adjustments to my training approach and my mindset and keeping a positive attitude that I can get healthy enough time to participate in the race. Words of encouragement are welcome. I've been an athlete for 30 years, and this is my first injury. Okay, well, first. First injury? Lucky all of my body parts are jealous that this is the first, but I get how much of that sucks. Um, and I hope you're finding a way to kind of keep your body moving while still healing, stick to the PT as annoying as it is. Uh, and now honestly, you got a kick-ass recovery to race story to tell. So it's going to make your accomplishment all the more impressive, you know, just keep listening to your body. And remember that the race is about doing something good for you. It's about achieving a goal. It's not about pushing beyond what your body can do right now. It's not about a time. It's not about impressing people with how well you did. It's starting and finishing. Something that you aim to do. And once you do that, you can always do it again, faster and better. You got this. And same goes for you, Mark. Our, our guy Mark got sidelined with COVID, tried to start training again, struggling with the hip issue. Just be patient. But don't give up. Set new timelines and make you know, smart training goals to recover from the injury. Take it easy on yourself while you recover, but don't stop altogether. Keep at it. Uh, Hafid of the Dew Crew got COVID too. Man, this has been a spring Uh, early spring i guess uh uh spin for for covid going around again which sucks uh but hafid is on the mend uh he's cut back on the fast food which is great and the good weather's gonna help him with those outside workouts our music writer christopher says the music's going well i signed up for a website currently going through some online learning for better mixing and audio recording uh has a song and video ready for uploading but keeps getting blocked by youtube bots for copyright infringement trying to figure out how to get something posted. If anyone listening has a tip on dealing with that sort of thing, you can message me on Twitter, at Sarah Spain. Email me, Spain2323 at Gmail, and I'll, I'll shoot Christopher over a message uh, with your help if you've got tips. Um, it looks like he at least was able to get one up because he posted something to our Facebook, his super funky first song uh, on YouTube. Just search Savage and the Beasts, song one. Good jam. Very funky. Uh, Katie Shelley, remember her, our resident Welsh learner, she checked in to say that she's actually drawing inspiration from the fellow Do Crewers.
2: One of the difficult things about a year-long goal is that it's hard to feel progress when you're taking small steps. So it's been really great to see folks making progress with their own goals on the Do Crew Facebook page, and that's been really exciting and energizing for me lately.
0: Love that. And yeah, speaking of that Facebook page, uh, photographer Sapria posted some gorgeous recent pics that she took. um, Also updated us on her goal to download and store and catalog photos within 24 hours of taking them. Uh, She wrote, It can be a bit overwhelming and frustrating at times, but I've learned to give myself some grace to help take the pressure off. I believe this has helped me stick with my plan so far rather than falling into my old habits. I'm not letting perfection get in the way of progress, which is a big change for me. Progress is happening just much slower than I would like. So she's going to continue to learn some new skills, seek out a mentor to accelerate learning, diving into some books and videos and resources to uh, to help learn and applying for a grant and a membership. Love that. Um, and that is such a great, great, great message. Do not let perfection get in the way of progress. A lot of people give up on their goals or their habit changes when they have a little setback. Can't do that. You just got to stick with it. It doesn't have to be a perfect straight line to get to where you want to go. Uh, we got great news from Douglas. Said his ongoing search for physical and mental balance took a big step forward the past couple of weeks. Took his first extended vacation in over a year, taking on uh, on-campus on mental health resources like support groups and research studies, using those to his advantage. Um, and said, I think my mentality has been slowly shifting more towards self-care than it has in the past, and I credit the Do Crew with helping that shift. For instance, I've always used my unused vacation time as a makeshift severance package if I should lose my job for any reason. I think that comes from me entering the first workforce almost exactly when the 08 financial crash and start of the recession happened. Always had in the back of my mind that my position could be let go at a moment's notice and I would be effectively screwed. So I always thought to try and accrue as much vacation time as possible. The pandemic really helped my perspective on this, showing I could be more quote-unquote selfish with self-care and ultimately... Being part of the do crew is to fuel that accountability to accomplish the goal at hand. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's always good to plan for the future, but you can't just keep putting off those moments that you need right now to be happy in the now in case something goes wrong. You will deal with that when you come to it, if you come to it. But make sure you take that time for yourself now. Uh, Erica... she is taking that time for herself it slowed down her writing but it's for good reason she and her husband finally got to get in some travel that was pushed back from covid visited friends in texas went on an alaskan cruise they've been planning for years which is awesome once you're back and settled get back into a good rhythm with that writing that you're trying to do al a writer too he's chugging along here's his update
2: hey sarah and twss listeners did you know that a picture book has only 32 pages or that you have to wedge an imagination full of story into about 500 words? Neither did I. Much like learning anything new, I've found a world of unexpected challenges to the process of creating something new and compelling. The difference is I've found the resources, online classes, national organizations, webinars, and videos to meet each of those challenges and continue to hone the story I want to share. I'm looking toward the end of this summer to have a refined draft to submit for review and then hopefully submit for publication by the end of the year. It is so exciting slash terrifying to create something new. Bye.
0: Yes, Al, it is terrifying and exciting and rewarding. So keep at it. I love that. Um, Ross, our aspiring cookbook author, he actually put some photos of the dishes he's working on in our Facebook, which look delish, and sent an update on a new way he's going to try to brainstorm some new recipes and ideas. So I came up with this idea because I love the Guy Fieri show
2: Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives where he goes to all these cool local restaurants and tries all these cool foods. And I thought it'd probably be a pretty cool idea. It would not only help me get a better appreciation of where I'm at and it would also help me with my do-crew goal. So I started making a little bucket list of places that Yelp and local websites say that are really good. And I'm pretty excited to start going to some of these places this weekend and trying a couple things, make bringing my goofy little notebook with me, and hopefully I can steal something
0: <laughs> that is awesome. Um again, just can't take the now for granted. Even if you have plans to move or move on from something. You, you can't burn the day waiting for what's next. Explore, adventure, learn, get out there, make it happen now so that you don't regret those killed days later because you can, you can always do those things when you move or when you move on, but that doesn't prevent you from making the most of where you are now and what's going on in your life now. Uh, love the updates. Keep them coming, people. Uh, you can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you got guest suggestions, dilemmas, or more. You could always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe or follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain rate it five stars please give me a nice review Uh, thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me
2: that's what she said